First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truth of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women of worthy, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Elias. Good morning, everyone. Do keep that passage uh, open, and there's an outline on the inside of your sheets if you'd find that helpful. <clears throat> Sometimes people ask me if I get nervous when I preach, and the answer is yes. Uh, it's not because I'm speaking in public, although I do get the odd butterfly about that, but because of the weight of what uh, I'm doing when I preach. I'm declaring the authoritative, powerful Word of God, a word which can genuinely transform people's hearts and lives, which can change people's eternal destiny. Getting it right, preaching the word accurately and faithfully is an incredible privilege and responsibility. Getting it wrong is an unthinkable horror. But I'll be honest, I've rarely felt the weight of preaching as strongly as when preparing this passage. This passage shines a light, a searchlight into the hearts of people Paul calls overseers and deacons. He's referring there, as we'll see in a moment, to the public leaders and servants of the church, the household of God. We call our overseers elders, as Paul himself does later in this letter. The role of deacons in our church is basically fulfilled by our team leaders, those who are charged with coordinating particular areas of service. And so if you are an elder or a team leader this morning, <clears throat> this teaching might feel particularly sharp and searching for you. But what about the rest of us? We might think this would be a good passage to explore at an elders meeting or a team leaders meeting, but what does it have to do with anyone else? Perhaps particularly if you are a visitor here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, what on earth has this thing about how you should like, structure your church and which people should be in leader? What on earth has that got to do with me? 
Well, it's my contention this morning that if we carefully listen to God's word today, we will see a beautiful picture of the well-managed household of God. A picture if we all, as a church, take it seriously, will not only protect us from danger, but also be powerfully attractive to those outside. And so if you are uh, an outsider, a visitor today, I hope you will see that God's design for his church is a beautiful and precious thing and something you cannot get anywhere else. Let me just pray for us as we get into this word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before we dive into the details of the passage, it's worth us reminding ourselves of the context of this letter, why Paul is writing. Remember that Paul has been telling us, teaching us about God, our Saviour. That's his name for God throughout the letter. And as he's been addressing various issues within the church, he's never been far away from talking about God's desire and his plan to save sinners from judgment. In chapter 1, he told Timothy about the grace that he had received and that all should accept the trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In chapter 2, as we saw last week, Paul was urging the kind of prayer which pleases God, the God who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is his Paul's mission. He was appointed a herald of this truth, and he wants this church in Ephesus to order themselves and conduct themselves in such a way that both protects and promotes the gospel of Jesus. But there's a problem in this church, a danger to that mission, a threat working against God the Saviour against his salvation plan. And that danger was a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church and started preaching a different message. It's difficult to reconstruct exactly what they were saying, but we've had some hints as we've gone along. We've seen that they've made the Old Testament law, which was given, as Paul has said, as a means of convicting people of their sin and bringing them to repentance. They've started taking that law and made it into a matter of pedantic quarrels and arguments within the church. It's a, it's a twofold problem with a twofold threat. The twofold problem is that the false teachers are both wrong and bad. They're wrong. They've, they've misunderstood the Bible, which they claim to know really well. They have, as I think we'll see in coming weeks, taken their eyes off Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and started making the teaching of the Bible to be all about themselves. They're wrong about the Bible, and as well as that, they're bad. As chapter 1 says, they've turned away from a good conscience. We'll learn later how some of them are motivated by a greedy love of money and a proud love of self. And as we've seen already, those two things are linked. False teaching can lead to ungodly behavior, and ungodly behavior can lead to false teaching, and so it's a twofold problem. And it brings with it a twofold threat to the mission of God. One threat is that the people within the church might be led astray. We'll see that very clearly in chapters 5 and 6, as Timothy will need to warn and rebuke people within the Ephesian church who are wandering away from sound doctrine and from godly behavior under the influence of these false teachers. The other threat is that the church's mission to those outside might be badly compromised. Compromised because the quarreling and arguments within the church turn them inwards and compromised because by abandoning the gospel and its implications, they look no different 
to the world around them. Paul's been showing Timothy that this church is God's new humanity, his recreated household, his family, and yet the church is in danger of showing nothing of the family likeness to a watching world. We saw that last week. Men in the church being urged to pray rather than to fight like the other men who lived in the world around them. Women being urged to devote themselves to good deeds rather than to devote themselves to good looks like the women all around them. And the church ordering itself in such a way which reflects God's good design. The design he baked into humanity at the beginning and which the new humanity is to now joyfully live out together. All of this is under threat from the false teachers. And the scary thing is that it's very likely that some of these false teachers were elders, the public appointed leaders of the church in Ephesus. We can surmise that from the words of Paul to this exact group of elders around five years previously. Look on the screen at these words that we've seen before in Acts 20. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Here's the scary bit. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guards. Later on in chapter 5, Paul is going to imply that some of the elders of the church might not be doing their work well, and he's going to outline a process to publicly rebuke and discipline elders who've gone astray. Paul's prediction in Acts 20 appears to have come true. With that in mind, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 is a bit of a double-edged verse. Look at that with me. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, He desires a noble task. This is a double-edged verse because I think it potentially talks to two groups of people, two groups of men in the church. The first is those who are itching to be elders, who want positions of leadership and authority in the household of God. To those people, Paul is saying, guys, you must be aware you desire a noble task, a serious thing, a job not to be taken on lightly a role which carries a weight of responsibility and danger. And uh, later, Paul is going to tell Timothy not to be too quick to appoint elders. And we'll see more of that in the passage today, both for elders and deacons. In one sense, Paul is slightly putting people off from desiring the job of public leadership and service of the local church. But as well as that, it's possible he's also talking to a group of men who are holding back, fearful of the responsibility fearful of the fight. Perhaps one of the reasons Paul has had to teach so strongly on the roles of men and women in the previous chapter is that the women are beginning to feel like they have to take on the authoritative teaching roles because the men simply aren't showing up. I admit that's a bit speculative, but it makes sense. Like Adam, who hung back in the garden and let Eve deal with the serpent, who had infiltrated God's paradise, perhaps... It is the women who are taking a stand against the infiltrating wolves in God's church. And so 1 Timothy 2 is not saying, girls, sit down and shut up. It's saying, look, the women in the church are are doing well. They're able to teach. They're able to instruct each other. They are talking over coffee. They're doing great things. But if they feel like they have to take the pulpit and take the role of elders, then something's gone wrong in this church. Now, lads, step up. So Paul is saying to the men, it is time to be men. 
It's time to pray, as we saw last week. And it is time for some of you, he's saying to this church, to realize that a noble task, a good work, a weighty but glorious responsibility is in front of you, and some of you should want that. But perhaps this brings us to the first real surprise of the passage. Well, it would have been a surprise, but Joe spoiled it earlier, which is that virtually everything Paul has to say about the roles of overseers and deacons in the church is not actually about the task itself, about what they've got to do, but about the kind of person they must be. It's about character. You see, we might come to a passage like this wanting answers to sort of church structure questions. How many elders should we have? What is their job and what isn't their job? What should deacons do? Do we, do we have to have them? Is it optional? What is their role if we do have them? What kind of thing needs a deacon in charge of it and what kind of thing doesn't? And different churches have come to sort of different opinions on that. But the passage doesn't want to answer those questions of ours. Paul clearly envisages that the church should be led by a group of men who have the responsibility for the leadership, the direction, and crucially, the Bible teaching of the local church. But apart from that, there's not a lot of guidance on the sort of programs elders might want to run, or the kind of decisions elders should have to make, or the structures that elders should put in place. Similarly with deacons. The word deacon is just the usual Greek word for servant. It's the word Paul uses of himself in chapter 1 verse 12, and of Timothy in chapter 4 verse 6. In a sense, every Christian is a deacon, every Christian is a servant, because we are people who, by God's grace, have turned away from serving idols and serving self to serving God and serving others. But this, in 1 Timothy 3, appears to be more of a particular public role. Everyone in the church appears to have known who these deacons are, and you can see it in verse 10 that deacons are appointed after a time of careful observation and training and testing to a particular area of service. In Acts chapter 6, we see one such area, uh, organizing the distribution of food to widows in the church. That seems to be the first time that a sort of a formal-ish deacon role was established in Acts chapter 6. And the deacons in in Ephesus might well have been serving the same role. We're going to learn in chapter 5 that in this obviously fairly sizable church, there are enough widows that there needs to be a formal system for providing for them. And it could be that the deacons are in charge of that, but we don't know for sure. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter. Because as I've said, the whole chapter is really about character. We're going to see very similar lists of characteristics for three groups of people. Overseers, what we would call elders in verse 2 to 7. Deacons, the servants, team leaders, if you like, 8 to 13. And then the women of verse 11. Now, our pew Bibles take this verse to be referring to the wives of male deacons. It could be that, but you'll notice there's a footnote uh, that suggests the phrase um, uh, deaconesses. It's actually just the word women. Uh, the word for, in Greek for women and, and woman and wife is the same thing. So it could be referring to the wives of male deacons, but it could be referring to female deacons, women who are taking on that role. And I think that's more likely, actually, for various reasons, which you can ask me about later if you like. Um, The public leadership roles of the church are to be taken by men for the reasons we explored last week. But we know that, for example, Phoebe in Romans 16 is called a a deacon, a servant. And I think it's likely that, that female deacons are more in view here. But as the lists are so similar, we're going to look at them all together. 
And we'll think about the character of these public leaders and servants of the church under five categories before turning to why it all matters, what the consequences are. So firstly, first characteristic that I want to sort of highlight in these lists of uh, overseers and deacons is sobriety. As a word we don't often use. Uh, I needed it to end with itty to match the rest of them. Uh, soberness, sober-mindedness, self-control. You see that actually in every one of the lists. Verse 2, they must be temperate. Verse 3, the opposite of temperate is not given to drunkenness. Verse 8, not indulging in much wine. Verse 11, the same way the women have to be temperate. Simply put, what Paul is saying is that neither the public leaders nor the public servants of the church can be people who get drunk. But this sobriety extends beyond the use of alcohol. There is a general sober-mindedness and self-control which seems to be expected of those who are taking on these roles. Overseers must be gen generally self-controlled, verse 2. They mustn't be lured by the love of money, verse 3. Neither must the deacons, in verse 8. They mustn't pursue dishonest gain. Instead, they're to use what they have for others. They're to be hospitable with their resources, with their money, verse 2. And there's a particular instruction that the elders and the male deacons must be husbands of one wife, verse 2 and verse 12. Now, I don't think that means that a single man or, or a single woman can't take on one of these roles, nor is this only, I think, a ban on polygamy. Polygamy is bad. We should only have one wife or one husband. But there's more going on here. In the context, I think this is saying that those taking on these roles must be faithful to their wives. They must be one-woman men. They must be those who flee sexual immorality, who resist the temptation to be adulterous or even to be flirtatious, who, and I think this is true whether they are married or not, are self-controlled in the area of sex. In other words... Paul says that those who are given public roles in the household of God must not be self-indulgent people. People who are ruled by their desires and their appetites. Who use the things of this world, alcohol, money and sex for themselves and for their own pleasure. That's not to say there isn't a right use of those things. As we're going to see in chapter 4, the good things of earth are for our enjoyment. And in fact, Paul is going to encourage Timothy to drink a little wine in chapter 5. But he's not talking here about the lawful enjoyment of good things of God. This is the self-indulgence of the person who has lost control of his desires, who is ruled by his or her appetites, who is living for himself or herself. And it's quite clear, I think, why that would be completely inappropriate for those who are in positions of leadership in the household of God. Because that's not how God has behaved, right? That's not how Jesus Christ behaved. Jesus, when he was on earth, did not indulge himself. He did not live for his own pleasures. No, he resisted temptation in order to devote himself to the mission of God, to obeying God, to pleasing God, to loving God, and to loving others. Because the truth is, as the church in Ephesus was beginning to experience self-indulgence in those areas I've mentioned, ruins lives. It's profoundly unloving to take a position of authority and from that position of authority to pursue pleasure. That is a profoundly unloving thing because it leaves a trail of broken lives. It was happening in Ephesus, as we'll see in chapters 5 and 6, and it happens throughout the history of the church. It's happened recently 
in certain high-profile cases in this country and in the U.S., church leaders who've pursued pleasure and destroyed their ministry and, and hurt people. As elders, we're currently reflecting on some of those cases in order to try and learn lessons from them. But the thing that's going to guard our hearts and minds against this self-indulgence is the gospel of Jesus, the one who came into the world not to please himself, but to save sinners. And because Jesus was self-controlled as the ruler of his household, so we who have public leadership and service roles in the household of God must be self-controlled, we must be sober. Secondly, the public leaders and servants of the church have to be men and women of integrity. That is, their private life cannot be at odds with their public role. We see that most clearly in verse 4. Joe's already uh, helped us look at this verse. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And a very similar thing is said uh, about deacons in verse 12. You see, throughout this letter, as we've already explored, the church has been described as a family, as the household of God. And Paul's point essentially is very simple. If you're going to put people in positions of authority and positions of public service in the household of God, if you're going to entrust the management of the household of God to people, then choose people who can manage their households. If somebody lives an utterly chaotic home life, if their children are wild and disobedient, if there's no discipline, if their home is a place of disorder and stress, then why would you expect things to go any better when you put the household of God under their care? Notice with me uh, in verse 5 that the ability to manage his own family, manage it as a ruling word, it's an authority word, is put in parallel with taking care of God's church. And that's a word which is about love and compassion and care. And so the point is this, it is not a loving or a compassionate thing to let your children run wild to never discipline them, because then they'll they'll never know right from wrong, they'll get themselves into all sorts of danger, they will cause themselves and other people harm. Similarly, in a church context, the overseer who lets false teaching and ungodly behavior run riot in the church, the leader who never does what Paul is calling Timothy to do, that is to rebuke people and command people not to teach falsehood and even to put false teachers out of the church, the leader who never does that can't be caring for his flock. He's not loving his flock. The shepherd who is afraid to confront a wolf is leaving the sheep at its mercy. It's not kind or loving. That's that's unloving. Here we see a general principle in the Bible that character cannot be turned on and off like a tap. Someone who is leading a sinful and chaotic and disobedient life in one area is not going to turn out to be a godly, helpful, wise example in another area of life. Someone's character is an overflow of their heart. And that is not a tap that can be turned on and off. It's more like a spring, always on, always bubbling up. You see, there are times we'd like to believe in our world that someone's private life doesn't really matter in their public life. Yes, all right, that politician's got a bit of a grubby romantic life, but we need him to bring stability and order to our country. Yeah, we've, we've heard all the rumors, but she's a brilliant boss and she's taking this company forwards. All right, the photos and texts look bad, but he's our best striker. The Bible will not have it, not at least in the household of God. And we can understand why when we think about the link we've already seen between behavior and doctrine. 
Wrong thinking about God leads to ungodly living. Ungodly living leads to wrong thinking about God. And that is disastrous for the church's witness and the church's mission. Now, I should say something at this point. We've only got through two of the five categories I've lumped these characteristics into. It's possible that all the elders and team leaders of church are all quietly despairing in a corner. After all, who among us could claim to be living this kind of life perfectly? Total self-control in every area of life. Who is worthy for such a task? Well, that's not what Paul is saying and not what God is asking for. As Joe's already told us in chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy that he is to devote himself to setting an example to the believers and to preaching and to teaching so that everyone might see his progress. Not his perfection, but his growth, his progress. And we can also see that in the next category, that public leaders and servants of the church are to have humility. We see that particularly in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. He, an overseer, must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Now, that might seem a bit dramatic. I hope that we can see the potential danger here. Someone who's just become a Christian, who's just come into the community of the church, who is suddenly fast-tracked, promoted to leadership in that church, promoted, uh, might come to think that there's something a little bit special about it especially if that person has been schooled in in worldly leadership. As one commentator puts it, worldly leadership is about place, significance, importance, and power. Christian leadership is about service and caring, sacrificial love, and a recent convert may not yet see the difference. But even then, uh, verse 6 seems a bit strong, doesn't it? Could pride really lead to falling under the same judgment as the devil? Paul is clearly saying that pride is a threat to salvation itself, that becoming proud and conceited is incompatible with being a Christian. But shocking though that seems, that that must be right. Paul's trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance in chapter 1 verse 15 is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. To be a Christian is to acknowledge your own sinfulness and need of forgiveness and to continue to acknowledge your own sinfulness and need of forgiveness. Not in some sort of abstract way as if we we just acknowledge that, yes, we're in the abstract category of sinners. But to admit that we continue to do actual sins. (laughs) We continue to think and say and do wrong things. And so we need an ongoing repentance, ongoing faith, ongoing forgiveness from Jesus. So what does it reveal about someone? If they're puffed up with pride because of their position in the household of God. What does it reveal about a man is if, if, as in verse 3, he is violent instead of gentle. Someone who gets their way by force and bullying rather than, as we saw last week, by prayer and gentle persuasion. What does it reveal about a woman if, as in verse 11, she is a malicious talker? Someone who is seeking to undermine others, to gain position for themselves through slander and backbiting and gossip. It reveals that they may not have a grasp on the very basics of the gospel. And if they don't have that, then they cannot protect or promote the gospel in the household of God. And actually they ought to fear and repent. And that brings us to ability. Because buried deep within this list of character traits is a single skill. It's there at the end of verse 2. Overseers must be able to teach. 
Now, that doesn't mean I don't think that it's wrong to think about other abilities that overseers and deacons might have. You wouldn't want deacons, if they're sort of organizing practical service, to be completely scatty, disorganized people, for example. And this isn't everything the Bible has to say about leaders and servants in the church. But it is striking that the only skill the overseer must have is the ability to teach, to understand the truths of the words, to handle that word rightly, to refute the errors of false teachers. These are necessary things in the household of God, and they require some ability in study and reading and thinking and writing and speaking. In fact, that is why the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6 appointed deacons in the first place to take some of the burden of practical service away from the apostles so that they could devote themselves to just that, to uh, the ministry of word and prayer. That's why we're so grateful to all who serve in our church family and particularly for our team leaders who handle so many crucially important aspects of our church life and free the elders up to study and pray and teach. But even then, this is not purely an intellectual ability. We've seen it so often. Someone's ability to teach is not just about how smart they are. I imagine the false teachers in Ephesus were very smart cookies indeed. It might even have been their intellectual ability, their their, their facility to construct impressive arguments which led so many people astray. Rather, this is about holding on firmly to the truth, which is about the heart and the conscience as much as it's about the brain. We see that in verse 9. The deacons didn't seem to have a particular teaching role, but they too, verse 9, must hold, uh, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The public leaders and servants of the church must have a firm grasp on the, on the gospel and the ability to speak it out and live it out. And that's because finally they must have respectability. Shot through this entire passage is a concern for respectability. That is how these people appear in the sight of others. In verse 2, we're told that overseers must be above reproach and that they must be respectable. In verse 8, deacons, male deacons, are to be men worthy of respect. In verse 11, the female deacons are to be women worthy of respect. In verse 10, the test of whether someone should be accepted as a deacon... It doesn't appear to be sort of a a practical test. It's whether there is nothing against them. That is, that they are blameless. There's nothing in their character which is like a major visible flaw that others could see. And the big reason for this is given in verse 7. It's it's difficult to see in translation. Uh, It's probably helpful to know that verses 2 to 6 is one long sentence in Paul's Greek with just one verb in it, the verb he must in verse 2. He just goes, he must, and then it's just like a string of adjectives all the way down to verse 6. And then, at the end of verse 6, Paul ends his sentence and starts a new one in verse 7, marking this out as a particular concern with a new verb, he must, what, it is, uh, what is crucially important for the public leaders of the church, 3 verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And thinking about why that's so important leads us to our final point, consequences. Why does all of this matter? I hope we can see why it's right, why it makes sense, why it'd be massively inappropriate for the household of God to be led and served by people who who don't fit this description, 
Of course, again, no one except Jesus is ever going to do this perfectly, but there is a need for people who will increasingly be shaped in in good and godly directions to to step up and lead and to serve in the household of God. But, But why is that so crucial? Well, remember the context. Remember the false teachers, their twofold problem and the twofold threat. The twofold problem, they are wrong and they're bad. They're the opposite of everything we've been seeing. Self-indulgent, hypocritical, proud, gospel-denying. And they're causing a twofold threat. Luring people away from the truth within the church and compromising the outward mission of the church. Well, to that twofold problem with its twofold threat, Paul presents a twofold solution with a twofold blessing. The twofold solution is men and women who are both holding on to and living out the truth of the gospel who are increasingly transformed by the true gospel such that they are growing in self-control, integrity, and humility, and who teach the truth faithfully. Instead of the vicious circle of ungodly thinking leading to ungodly behavior, which leads to wrong thinking and wrong behavior, you get the virtuous circle of the truth impacting people's hearts so that they grow, and that growth enabling them to grasp more of the truth, and that truth enables them to grow. It's a twofold solution that leads to a twofold blessing. First, it enables the church to protect the truth against the threat of the wolves who are coming in to destroy the faith of its members. The teaching and example of the overseers and the deacons guard precious lives from being led astray. The overseers can guard against threats coming from the top down, if you like, from the false teachers. And as we're going to see in the second half of the letter, the deacons may have a particular role to play in guarding against threats coming from the bottom up. We'll see that in chapter 5. And so living out this teaching would enable the church to protect the truth. But secondly, it enables them to proclaim the truth. That is what all this emphasis on respectability and reputation with outsiders is all about, I think. Verse 7 puts it negatively. If the overseer doesn't have a good reputation with outsiders, what is the result? Disgrace. Reproach. The unedifying spectacle of the world looking down on the behavior of the church, and rightly so. Now, we have to remember that those outside the church will often revile Christians for what they believe and teach and do, even if we're doing everything right. Paul is not for a minute suggesting that the church modify its behavior to fit with what the world currently thinks is acceptable or to only say and do things that the prevailing culture would agree with so we don't offend anybody, not in the slightest. But even a culture which hates God and the gospel can know something of right and wrong. Call it common grace, call it the conscience that God has put in their hearts. People can see when a Christian church or a Christian leader falls short of the behavior that the gospel demands, or even worse, when they fall short of the behavior that even the unbelieving world sort of agrees is the right thing to do. See it in the Bible. See it in places like Genesis chapter 20, when the pagan king Abimelech rebukes Abraham for pretending that his wife is his sister. He says, you have done what ought not to be done. Saying, look, anyone can see that's wrong. We can see it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the family that will not care for the members of its household is rebuked as being worse than the unbelieving world around them, and therefore bringing blame and slander and reproach into the church. 
We can see it in those contemporary reports of church leaders behaving in ways that shock even those used to power-hungry worldly leadership. Maybe we can hear it in the surprised word that a friend speaks to us. I didn't think Christians made jokes like that. Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? Why are you on your fourth pint? The result? Disgrace. The gospel falls into disrepute. The behavior of Christians gives people reason to disbelieve and blame and slander the gospel itself. That is why the poor reputation of Christian leaders with outsiders is called the devil's trap. Verse 7. The word devil, do you know what the word devil means? If you don't know, it's a fun fact. The word devil literally means slanderer. It's the same word used in verse 11 to describe the malicious talk of the women. If the women are going to be slanderers, then they will lose the respect of outsiders. The gospel will be slandered, and the slanderer is going to gain a victory. As another church or another Christian leader falls into disgrace, and the progress of the gospel, the mission of God, is hindered. But, by contrast, the godly behavior of the public leaders and servants of the church, their sobriety, their integrity, their humility, can, by God's grace, adorn the gospel. Make it more beautiful in the eyes of a watching world. Lend credence to our evangelism. In fact, that's what verse 13 might mean. It's a bit of a tricky verse, verse 13. The commentator's a bit baffled by this one. Let me, let me read it again. In our, in our Bibles it says this. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now many commentators have noticed this is quite an odd sentence actually. The way it's translated here, it seems to suggest that serving well means that you get a higher position somehow, the idea of an excellent standing. That's not usually the way Paul tries to motivate godliness, by saying that if you serve well, if you're godly, you'll get a promotion of some kind. That doesn't sound quite like Paul. Now, he could just be saying that serving well brings us the honor of the church community, a church which loves and treasures sacrificial service more than we do power and gifts, and that if we serve well, that helps us be confident in our faith as we grow to be more like Jesus. Now, that is a perfectly plausible, and may well be right, reading of that verse, and in that it would parallel verse 1. So verse 1 is saying to the overseer, or, or someone who might want to be an overseer, this is a good thing. You should want to do this. And in verse 13, he's saying the same thing. Do you want to be a deacon? That's a good thing. You should want that. That has benefit for you. But there's a couple of words in this verse that mean another interpretation is possible. The word translated standing simply means a step or some kind of raised platform. Very unusual words in the New Testament. It's not a word that has anything to do with honor, really. It just means a step. And the word translated assurance is often used to mean particularly boldness in speech, boldness in evangelism. Throughout the book of Acts, it means that all the time. The ability to speak freely and plainly and courageously. And as well as that, the verse begins in Greek with the word for. So here is a literal translation on the screen, which might be closer to what you might read in a different version of the Bible. Say so it's a difficult verse. So going on from verse 12, a deacon must manage his household well for... Those who have served well gain for themselves a good step platform and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Let's just leave that on the screen. And this reading suggests that being a public servant of the church might lead to a, a bit more of a public profile within the community, a bit more of a, a raised 
profile, particularly if they're taking care of the widows in the community, people are going to notice that. And perhaps a bit more courage and a bit more opportunity to speak out about Jesus. Your name's on the website, you're involved in serving, you're going around helping people. Those around you might ask a bit more about what you're doing, why it's important to you, and you have a chance to speak. After all, that is precisely what happened when the first deacons were appointed in Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, Stephen is appointed as a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. His name becomes public. He becomes publicly associated with Jesus. And what happens next? Acts 7, where he preaches the longest evangelistic sermon in the whole Bible with great boldness and the whole world watching. And that four, at the beginning of verse 13, would then suggest that it's that public role in bearing witness to Jesus that makes it all the more important for the deacon to live a godly and well-ordered life. It's very important that you manage the household well for you're going to have a raised profile and more opportunities to speak about Jesus. In that respect, verse 13 is parallel to verse 7. So at the end of the, the verses about elders, verse 7 says, and make sure you've got a good reputation with outsiders. And it's the same structure in the second half of the passage. All that stuff about deacons, and then verse 13 is saying, and it's really important this, because you're going to have a bit of a raised profile with outsiders, so you better make sure that you're looking after your household well. Now, whether that's the right interpretation of verse 13 or not, it's a tricky verse. Um, I'm not the only person in the history of Christendom to think that's the interpretation. Calvin sort of agrees with me, so that's nice. But, but the general point is clear. Just as ungodly teaching and behavior slanders the gospel, so godly teaching and behavior adorns the gospel. If people can see that the result of gospel preaching is a well-ordered church led by humble, self-controlled, sincere men, served by humble, self-controlled, sincere men and women, then the church can better live out its calling as the pillar and foundation of the truth, the new humanity, the household of God publicly calling people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, praying for that, calling people to come and enjoy life as it's meant to be lived in the sure knowledge of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, the one who came to save sinners. Let me conclude today with a simple statement that I hope all of us who are part of our church today can agree with, which is, this is the kind of church we want to be. Is that true? I want, and the other elders want, to be men who are increasingly self-controlled in every area of life, to live with integrity and humility, to grow in our ability to teach, to maintain our, relation, our reputation with outsiders for the sake of both those within and those outside the church. And I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect yet. So if you are a member of this church, will you help us? Will you pray for us and help us guard our lives and doctrine? Will you encourage us? Will you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Will you help us? I'm so thankful for those who serve in our church, who serve on teams, those who lead those teams, our equivalent of deacons. Will you give thanks with me for those men and women? Will you help them and pray for them and encourage them? And will you, all of you, aspire, who are members of this church, all of you aspire to be men and women of this kind of character? Not everyone's going to be an elder, not everyone's going to be a team leader doesn't really matter because what is required of elders and team leaders is really nothing less and nothing more than faithful Christian discipleship. 
growing in the fruit of the gospel, having a, having a deepening concern for the right teaching of the scriptures, backed up with evidence of transformed lives. Now, it could be, perhaps particularly, there are some men here who know they've been taking a back seat and need to step up to become someone who's passionate about protecting and proclaiming the gospel. Now, whether that means being an elder or not is not really the goal. The goal is to be a whole church humming with the gospel, loving its truth, encouraging each other to live it out, and holding, out, holding it out to a watching world with integrity. And so what if you're not a Christian this morning? What if you're currently part of that watching world? Well, you should know we're, we're not a perfect church, far from it. But you should also know that there is no greater privilege than being a member of the household of God. A place where God expects and helps those who lead and those who serve to be growing into the kind of people that we all want to be. Humble, self-controlled, loving, caring, courageous people with something to say to our broken worlds. And yet if you are not a Christian this morning, if, if you're an outsider to our community, we don't want you to just come to love our church or appreciate our leaders. We want you to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because he fulfilled every aspect of 1 Timothy 3 perfectly. He was, never, he was always self-controlled, never lost his temper, never got drunk, always gentle, always kind, always faithful, always treated women around him with utmost respect, never violent, never proud. What a man. What a man. Persecuted by the world who should have honoured him, slandered and killed. But as that was happening, he loved and forgave even the ones who killed him. Can you imagine? Here is someone who can love and forgive even you. We want you to come and know this man. And we as a church family are trying and praying and hoping that nothing we do or say is going to get in the way of you coming to know this man but instead that our church is going to back up our preaching of this man so that you come to know him, that you come to put your trust in him. You come to, as we have done, repent it and believe in him to say, we are the worst of sinners over here, but that Christ Jesus came into the world to save us and he came to the world to save you. I'm going to give us all a moment to reflect on what we've been hearing and I'll lead us in prayer. Let's finish with these words from 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.